Our chalice-lighting words are from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail. Will we be extremists for hate, or will we be extremists for love? Will, be, will we be extremists for injustice, or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must not forget that all, all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thusly fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Aufscheiden. Last week in a service where we addressed feminism, and again this week on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, we look at matters of race in our country. I've mentioned one of my childhood experiences. I was led to the spirit of love in the sweet little community of my childhood. Yet that sense of love, of love for all that permeated up was undermined when some of my neighbors insulted me for being an offie. This epithet would be hollered at me and my brothers and sisters and Christian school classmates at almost any time in almost any place, offie. Last week, as I was reflecting on this epithet, I decided to call my brother, an English professor who once studied in Holland, because there was a little twist on that slur my brother might know. And he did. He told me about a religious schism that led to this word, offie. It is derived from the Dutch word, Offscheiden, a word that means to separate, remove, or divide. Offscheiden gained ecclesial, ecclesiastical significance after a group of religiously conservative pietists left the state church in 1834 to form Christian separated municipalities, independent churches in the Dutch, Christlike Aufgescheiden Gementin. 
That schism morphed Aufschreiden into Offi in several Dutch cities in the United States and remained in place in the 1950s over 120 years later. You know, after I left Pella, Iowa, I never heard Offie again. And its absence fueled the opening of the power of love within me, flowering at petals tinged with a fervent, fervent commitment to justice, equity, and compassion for all. another excerpt from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail. I was arrested Friday on the charge of parading without a permit. Now there is nothing wrong with an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade, but when the ordinance is used to preserve segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly, and peaceful protest, then it becomes unjust. I hope you can see the distinction I am trying to point out. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law as the rabid segregationist would do. This would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do it lovingly, openly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. An individual who breaks, the law, breaks a law that conscience says is unjust and willingly accepts the penalty by staying in jail to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the very highest respect for law. toward love. Today's words are difficult. They are centering words designed to move you and I as if we were in a labyrinth through one of life's most difficult twists and turns. On this Martin Luther King Jr., we recall that it has been almost 51 years since his assassination. And that during his life, King had an orientation toward love, an effort to extend that loving spirit and into justice and equity for all 
led to his early demise. A focus on loving one another is similar to views shared in this church, not only in this pulpit, also from you, especially from you. By contrast, there is an attitude in America that has quite effectively wormed its way into the hearts and minds of many who worship with us. Many white people think of racists as bad people, and we have seen them, these racists, and are not like them. For years, I believed I was not a racist, using that criteria. Not me, certainly not me. I found comfort in my efforts to build bridges, not barriers. I had appeared in the courtroom to back up people who were wrongly accused, sent letters pleading for release for those wrongly imprisoned, supported civil rights organizations, shed tears for Martin Luther King Jr. for all he was able to do, and all that is left undone. Yet, I now realize, through it all, I have missed so much of the story, so much of what had been happening, and fallen so often into habits I did not fully comprehend. Through it all, I have been a racist. You heard Dr. King's words earlier. Although I had read the letter from the Birmingham jail before several times, I studied it more carefully this year. Just after King wrote about Jesus being an extremist for love, he adds, I had hoped that the white moderate would see this. Maybe I was too optimistic. Maybe I expected too much. I guess I should have realized that few members of a race that has oppressed another race can understand or appreciate the deep groans and passionate yearnings of those that have been oppressed and still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. King's despair about the moderate white response became the focus of a 2018 Beacon Press book from Robin D'Angelo. D'Angelo is a sociologist, academic, lecturer, author, and a consultant on racial and social justice issues for 20 years. She warns us early in her text, I am white and I am mainly writing to a white audience. When I use the terms us and we, I am referring to the white collective. A bit later she adds, as a sociologist, I am quite comfortable generalizing. Social life is patterned and predictable in measurable ways. Finding an inner agreement with her perspective, this message is for those who are white. I hope it will be of interest to all, but it's crafted to point whites toward their center. And this is a difficult top for many, difficult topic for many. 
Yet it is through careful consideration that we move through the toughest twists in the labyrinth of life, considering what we understand and what we do not understand in the hopes to advance toward our spiritual center and to a better world for all. D'Angelo writes that racism is the norm rather than an aberration. This is not the result of a schism. Social forces have been designed to build and then reinforce racial separation. This prejudice against people of color has, in a socially constructed framework, allowed whites to be insulated from racial stress. Given how seldom we experience racial discomfort in a society we dominate, writes D'Angelo, we haven't had to build our racial stamina. Socialized into a deeply internalized sense of superiority, we are unaware of or can never admit this to ourselves. We become highly fragile in conversations about race, many wanting to run away rather than have the conversation. Her text shares many benefits, many insights that would benefit us all. I offer three points for your consideration. First, there has been a social construction of race in the United States. Second, there is difficulty with understanding this socialization. And third, there is a problem with applying a good-bad binary to racism. D'Angelo begins with the social construction of race, saying race is an evolving social idea. The term white first appeared in colonial laws in the late 1600s. By 1790, people were asked to claim their race on the census. By 1825, the perceived degrees of blood determined who would be classified as an Indian. From the late 1800s through the early 20th century, as waves of immigrants entered the United States, the concept of a white race was solidified. The development of racial separation that has happened over generations led sociologist Joe Feagan to coin the term the white racial frame. An American mindset on white privilege and privileges and many American citizens carry that mindset toward racial hatred. Now these are, these are not just words that I'm sharing with you today. During this past week, as this message was being prepared, I noticed several racially charged incidents. The Bellevue Reporter had a headline, More Neo-Nazi Flyers Appear in Bellevue. This is happening here, friends. Several young men wearing politically charged hats tormented a Native American elder. 
and I saw a CNN story on a GM plant in Topeka, Ohio, that has been filled, the plant has been filled with threats against African Americans, signs that say whites only, and five nooses have appeared on the plant grounds. Two employees, one cares for his mother, an amputee, the other, an ex-Marine, supports eight children, and both are or were plant supervisors are alarmed by the threats that are aimed at them. Can you imagine working in a place where nooses remind workers of lynchings, where signs say whites only, or where you, whoever you are, feel threatened? African Americans do not have an option of changing their skin color. It's not like they get up one day and say, I'm taking this off and I'm going to appear differently. Skin color is set at birth. Yet our culture has been socialized into a thought pattern favoring whites. D'Angelo says white people are actors in a shared culture. And one part of that culture, an important part, is individualism. An attitude is that everyone is equal. And, of course, if everyone is equal, then one's race should make no difference. There is a problem with this approach, says D'Angelo. To be a man, as defined by our culture, is a different experience from being a woman. We know that to be viewed as old is different from being viewed as young. Rich is different from poor. Able-bodied, different from having a disability. Gay, different from heterosexual, and so on. And it is in that context that we must realize that blacks have been oppressed and they remain oppressed with this oppression growing recently. Racism is not a bad attitude toward others. It is a system that confines a race. D'Angelo offers up the example of a birdcage she notes that if you put your face close to the cage, you cannot see its wires. And you might think of the bird as being free because you cannot see the wire. And if you pull away a bit and could see a wire or two, you might think the bird could step around those wires and fly away. We whites have a limited view on racism because there are many wires in that birdcage. One wire follows another just as one obstacle leads to the next. She writes, although there have been exceptions, the patterns are consistent and well-documented. People of color are confined and shaped by forces and barriers that are not accidental, occasional, or avoidable. These forces are systematically related to each other in ways that restrict their movement. Whiteness is a gift with social and institutional status and identity imbued with legal, political, economic, and social rights and privileges. 
denied to others, she writes. Since whites are on the outside of a systemic anomaly designed to limit the advancement of blacks, we can see how, why, and where racism is occurring. The racial status quo is comfortable for white people. And we will not move forward in race relations if we remain comfortable. The key to moving forward is what we do with our discomfort. I've come to accept D'Angelo's point of view, which leads me to the good-bad binary, a dysfunction of American thought that led to the white racial frame. Despite my orientation toward love, I have accepted a good-bad framing for years. I'm sure you have too, heard it said. He is not a racist, he is a really good guy. Sadly, a good guy can be a racist. Sadly, a good person can ignore the racial injustice that surrounds them, more importantly. In my individualistic point of view, I accepted colorblind racism not noticing race, aversive racism, I have friends of color, or I am concerned about character, not skin color, and cultural racism, tendencies set up in preschool, white racial framing, all discussed by D'Angelo. White America has, during their acceptance of colorblind racism, aversive racism, and cultural racism, viewed racism as a good-bad binary. There is a non-racist equal good frame for whites who are progressive, educated, open-minded, well-intentioned, young and northern. There is also a racist equals bad frame for whites who are ignorant, bigoted, prejudiced, mean-spirited, old and southern. I think of myself generally and have thought of myself as being in the first group, the non-racist group. The good group. D'Angelo helped me reframe this in the following section. The good-bad frame is a false dichotomy. All people hold prejudices, especially across racial lines in a society deeply divided by race. I can be told that everyone is equal by my parents, I can have friends of color, and I may not tell racist jokes. Yet I am still affected by the forces of racism as a member of a society in which racism is the bedrock. I will still be seen as white, treated as white, and experience life as a white person. My identity, personality, interests, and investments will develop from a white perspective. I will have a worldview and a white frame of reference. In a society in which race clearly matters, our race profoundly shapes us. If we want to challenge this construct, we must make an honest accounting of how it is manifest in our own lives and in the society around us. Most of white America has avoided addressing this white racial frame, but we must face it more honestly if it is to become possible to achieve the benefit of our orientation toward love. 
Justice and equity cannot arrive if the population is blind. And one place many white UUs have learned more about the difficulties underlying our social constructs has happened because many of us are listening carefully to words shared by African American Unitarian Universalists. If you wish to learn more, I invite you to read or view and then consider at least one of the sources you heard about today. An email will go out to church lists with a quick connect to the CNN story inside the GM plant where nooses and white-only signs hung, to Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, and to Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. If you can spend some time with one, two, or all three of these sources, please do so also considering your blessings as you mentally at least step into other shoes. And then let the insights you gain move you more closely, more full-mindedly, more intimately into your spiritual center. May we do our best to make it a possibility to convert an orientation toward love into the free, just, and equitable country seen in the dreams of Martin Luther King, Jr. Yet again, may the love in your hearts find love in the hearts of those around you. Namaste.